Welcome to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, science, and all things performance for cyclists and triathletes, helping you be a stronger, more savvy athlete now and for many years to come. Here's your host, Menachem Brody. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 170 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. My apologies for the raspy voice today, but I am getting over a second bout of some nasty virus that had me down for the last couple of days. And being that the last month has been extremely busy and I have not had the time to properly edit uh, any of the episodes here, we hadn't posted for about four weeks. And if you're a regular subscriber, I apologize for that. Um, This past month, uh, it was fantastic, but very busy. We had a number of federations get in touch with me, uh, asking me to give strength training for cycling, strength training for triathlon, um, presentations to their coaches, teaching them skills, tools, uh, helping them to be able to improve their abilities. Uh, That included me going to Bilbao, Spain, to present to the Science in Cycling Conference a keynote on Thursday morning, which went very well. Um, really interesting to see some of the science that's going to be released here in the next couple of uh, months as it goes through the vetting and publishing process. Uh, met some of really people, researchers I've been reading for the last 12, 15, 18 years. So really cool to actually meet them in person, not listen to them on a podcast or read their articles, but to actually meet them, uh, as well as putting on a master class uh, for coaches from all over Spain, the UK, Canada, as well as India, Uh, at the Science and Cycling Masterclass on Tuesday before, where we went over small changes for strength training results. Um, You know, these presentations are really challenging. Uh, I try really hard to meet each individual where they are to allow them to get what they they need out of the presentation. Um, And, you know, we're human, so I only have so much time and abilities, and that meant, uh, unfortunately, that the podcast got set aside for that time. But I did not want to let being sick uh, keep me from releasing this episode. I've been really excited to put this one out. So I didn't have a voice yesterday on Sunday. So here we are on Monday uh, releasing the episode 170 with uh, Dr. Lisa Lewis talking about the recovery process. And I had both interns that we have here for the summer, both Max and Jordana, uh, sat in on this uh, interview. And as you'll hear at the end, Jordana really found a ton of value and insights. And she says herself, she really wishes that uh, she had had this conversation or known this information back when she was going through her uh, big injury many, many years ago. So if you have an athlete that's injured or you would like to better meet your athletes or clients where they are when they're injured, this is a really important episode to listen to. Um, two quick announcements. Uh, we should be back on a fairly regularly uh, regular podcast uh, posting here. It's probably going to be every other week, uh, but I am going to try and do every week. It's just a matter of going through editing and making sure things are all set. So I'm looking forward to having that rhythm for the summer. Um, And the second thing is, uh, we do have the Stronger After 50 program, or I'm sorry, we have the Strength Training for Cyclist certification open here for the month of July. Um, So I'm going to keep it open. A couple coaches in the master class asked if I could uh, open it so that they can get in. Uh, So we're going to leave it here uh, for about two weeks in July. So uh, around the 24th, it's going to close. So if you would like to grab your spot in the certification, it is self-paced. You're able to go through. Uh, and it is the uh, deepest dive into strength training for cyclists out there, helping you to be able to better allow for performance. Uh, That's it for the intro. Let's get into today's episode number 170 with Dr. Lisa Lewis on return from serious injury, the uh, the journey of recovering from a serious injury. Three, two, one. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be back. It has been a while, but uh, it's been kind of interesting the last couple of years, just how everything's gone. Um, 2020, of course, happened. We were supposed to have a a weekend uh, workshop together. And since then, you've been, uh, you had the fitness, uh, Psych Skills for Fitness Professionals course launch. You've had a number of presentations uh, that you've done across the US. Can you bring us up to speed as what's going on in your world and how things are going? Yeah, sure. I would be glad to. So the course, yeah, has been um, open for enrollment at least once a year, if not twice a year since 2020. And 
Um, that's gone really well. You know, people, I think people who are interested in that course are people who already know that once they know the X's and O's of training and, and program design, that really uh, the lion's share of their work is about their communication skills and, you know, what the, what is referred to as soft skills, but it's basically, you know, the psychology of your clients and how to leverage that to get the best results out of them. So um, client people who've been taking the course are people who already are kind of there mentally that this is what they need to move forward in the profession. Um, and it's been really wonderful to hear from folks or I've done a couple like hop on lines and talk to people Q and a kind of talking about the content. Uh, and then of course, being invited to speak at workshops or seminars, or sometimes, um, individual gyms have hired me to come in and, and talk with their, you know, four to eight person staff and spend some time with their coaches really unpacking those concepts. So the application part of it in particular is really, really fun for me. And then I've continued to build my own private practice, which, you know, there's a mix of everything. So I do have some athletes that I work with before I completed my doctoral degree in sports psychology. I was a master's level therapist and I was an addiction specialist. So probably 50% of my clients are talking about typically they're drinking, but sometimes there's other addictive behaviors or substances that are going on. And some of those people include athletes um, and very high functioning people who are sort of kicking ass in life, but then struggling with something uh, kind of behind the scenes. And then another 30 people I work with are, you know, they're people, <laughs> they um, have trauma or anxiety or depression um, but you wouldn't know from seeing them on the outside. They're typically people who identify as high achievers or high performers, and they have the secret that they're carrying uh, to come in and do some work around. So having that balance of doing workshops and seminars and working with coaches and then being able to work with clients has really been a fabulous mix. And the pandemic actually has, in my opinion, really lowered the stigma, you know, and and encouraged more people, I think, or made it more normal for people to seek out help. So I'm hoping that is a change that really stays. It seems to be me and my colleagues are all very busy, uh, you know, people who are also therapists, but that's been a really happy kind of evolution of my own practice as well. I think that's one of the most unfortunately unspoken about benefits from Corona and being in that lockdown is we all went through it. So that stigma in my, I guess you'd say my opinion and my experience was lowered because everybody was going through it. Right. So that was the only time in history where we have all been shut in for so long that you can relate a little bit and it was okay to let your guard down. And it's really interesting that what you're seeing now is it wasn't just lowered. It's almost like the floodgates open. It's so much more common. It seems to be, Hey guys, I'm having a really crappy day or, or I've been having a really dark time. Can you help me? Is that something that you feel is a societal shift that will stick or, or we really have to kind of see how the next year or two goes? I hope it sticks. I mean, you know, we're, we're not in the thick of it anymore. So I think we're on the other side and you know, saying I'm having a hard time and I'm stressed, I agree with you, is is a very normal thing to say now. You know, Monday, yesterday, for example, a friend of a friend reached out to me and she was like, can you help me find a therapist? So I said, sure, I can put a note on my listserv. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're looking for? And she's like, well, I'm looking for someone to talk about my imposter syndrome and to work on self-esteem and to be more decisive at work. And this is like an extremely high-functioning executive level mother of two, right? So she's not talking about debilitating pathology. She's talking about pretty much being a human being in modern Western society and like wanting some support around that. And so I love that, you know, it's just, it's, I think every person on earth should have therapy. That's just my own opinion. And, and I worked in college mental health for a while where everybody can come and it's free. You don't need a diagnosis. You don't need to pay. And that model really showed me that pretty much everyone could benefit from getting some support sometimes. Um, it's just a matter of asking. So I think and hope this trend will continue. In the US, there is legislation being passed state by state 
to allow reciprocity of licenses. So you and I have talked before about needing to be licensed in a certain place in order to practice. And right now there's 40 US states and territories that have approved this. It's called like a passport for your license basically. And really that is, that way got accelerated because of the pandemic. And I don't really think rates of mental health problems are going up. I think people asking for help has gone up. And I think what we see now is more representative of how common it is to struggle and to develop pathology if you don't seek help early enough on when you're stressed out and you're and you're starting to feel like you need support. It's interesting because we, I haven't, I still would love him for him to work with you. Um, but because he's here in Israel and you're in the States, I, I, it makes total sense, right? So it makes sense because each country has their own rules that you have to go through. But I think it's really interesting that in the States itself, like I understand Pennsylvania, uh, licensure and Massachusetts, but at a certain point, it's kind of like, where, where does that, Really, it's it's just a made up boundary that was agreed upon. A made up boundary. Hundred something right. years ago, right? That's right. Yes, that's right. It's antiquated. So, for example, I had a client who lives in Massachusetts. She goes to college in New York State. She really did not want to be referred when it came time for her to go back to school because she and I were doing great together. And I was trying to explain to her about how, like, basically, it's illegal for me to provide services in the state of New York, and I could lose my license for doing that. And she was like, "Well." It's just 45 minutes. Like, should I get in the, the car and drive over the state line, park my car in Massachusetts and then have a session with you? And that, you know, that pisses me off that like in 2023, we have to have that kind of conversation about healthcare. And I think it frustrates many, many, many other people too, which is why this legislation I think is trying to catch us up yeah. um, and, and get the, you know, the antiquatedness away from really all it does is inhibit people from getting care i realize that each state wants to make sure that licensed professionals are qualified but at a certain point it, it's just a barrier it's not really you know it's not really helping anybody to keep me from seeing a college student who's 40 miles away from the state line yeah uh, as soon as you said drive 45 minutes i was like this is just ridiculous like there's got to be something well I Along with that, I think that the changes are happening fast in some areas. So it's fantastic to hear four states are, are changing, but it's also fast and slow. So specifically for today, you know, thinking about injury return uh, or like an actual big injury, we're not talking about a turned ankle or, and I don't mean to, to diminish this, but something like plantar fasciitis, where it's a lingering injury. We're talking about a true traumatic, in my case, you do something that you know far better than you should do. Um, but in a lot of endurance athletes cases, a, a injury that derails you from either training for your main event. So for most of us as masters, people are now paying over $1,000 to, to um, register for an Ironman race. And there's a lot of people who are, incurring life altering injuries because well, I paid the thousand dollars. I have to go through all this red tape. I might as well just push through and make it to the event and then realizing they aren't going to make it. And that is what I see a huge mental obstacle because endurance sports tends to attract people with addictive personalities, whether it's previously drugs or alcohol or something else. You know, I, I told the interns here the first day, like I don't use TikTok because I was addicted to my phone. There was one day where I unlocked it 380 something times. Like that is an addictive behavior. And it TikTok isn't very conducive to you're even more addicted. But let's focus on the injury process that the athletes go through. Can you talk a little bit about not just this, the theoretical stages? And they do happen, right? So we have anger, resentment acceptance. There's a whole list of, I think, what, seven, if I'm not mistaken, as you go through that. Can you talk us through the general overview of what uh, the injury, I guess you'd call it recognition. Would that be the right word for it? Mm. Well, I think it's the process of change, of adjusting to a change. You know, you're referring to Kubler-Ross's stages of grief, you know, the seven stages of grief and 
They're nice ideas and they're all feelings that people go through. More recent literature has said, you know, people don't really go through the sequence. It can be back and forth and round and round, or maybe some people never experience certain emotions or another. So the idea that like people are going to go from A to B to C to D on their journey through grief is, is kind of debunked, but you know, the way we think about grief is all feelings are valid and your process is your process. And what you need to do to get through it is to talk about it and be an active participant in moving through it and not, not be passive. So, um, I think I kind of lost your question. Oh, your question was, was kind of about how do we think about it? So I think about it as stages of change and really adjusting to something that you don't want to be true, you know? Um, and there is, you know, admitting that there's a problem. And I think runners is a good example of the difference between admit versus accept. So in 12 step programs like AA, there's a big difference between admitting that you have a problem and then accepting personal responsibility to do something about that problem. And I find the same thing with athletes. So you mentioned, you know, endurance athletes in particular, them having a little bit of a stickier <laughs> connection to their sports. So, you know, there's admitting like, yeah, my leg's bothering me. Yeah. It's kind of hurting. Yeah. I kind of feel it all the time. You know, that goes on for some time. And then there's like, shit. You know, I have a stress fracture. I can't be on it for six weeks. I can't go to the next two races that I'm signed up for. This really sucks. And, and becoming part of the solution of that, as opposed to, yeah, I got a stress fracture, but I got a race and I can get through it. It's not going to be that bad. And right. So I think the difference between admitting and accepting is a big, big deal. And what can we do to help people accept and become an active participant um, so one of the thing, one of the phrases I like to use a lot is the title of Dan John, one of Dan John's books, which is the gift of injury, which is, you know, can we reframe this as part of your athletic journey, as opposed to it being like a pit stop or a detour or something that's in the way of you getting back to your sport. Can we think about it as part of you know, that you, can we put your energy and your passion and your love for being athletic into your rehab, whatever that looks like, and try to create a conversation with the athlete around that. It's harder to create a conversation when the recovery looks like rest and nothing else. <laughs> That's the hardest sell. I think as people get back to, well, I can walk or like I have a runner right now with a, a stress fracture. And I was like, he was pissed, you know, and I was like, can you get in the pool? So he called the ortho. The ortho was like, yeah, you can get in the pool. So we, you know, he found a local pool. He got his gear. He got his ass in the pool and he was able to engage. Right. And so then it was talking about every time you get in the pool and you're not running, you are taking an active role in helping yourself get better. It's not just that you're waiting it out passively. You're actively doing something to make yourself feel good. That's not going to harm you. And that's going to assist your recovery. So that kind of reframe I have found fruitful. So what about with, with traumatic injury, right? So really traumatic, like for mine, I, I really, and I, I haven't said this publicly and I don't know why, but essentially when I broke my, my fibula or actually when I tore my shoulder, I later read another one of Dan John's books um, and he says, you know, the injury where it's sore, it hurts is not a real injury. The injury where the person says, I'm fine, really, that's when you're in trouble, right? That's when stuff is really bad. And I had that with my shoulder, I had it with the, the bicep. That's a type of injury I have in mind because I think when it comes to stress fracture, it comes to like some meniscal tears as well, like you can still do stuff. But there are certain ones where, especially with the medical systems we have now, like you have to go to the emergency room and then you have to go to a specialist and then a scan and then back to the specialist. So there's like three to five days where you're really lost and it can be really extremely lonely. Like even if you have professionals around you and, and a support staff and people who know, yeah, it can be extremely difficult. What are some strategies that the listeners can use to help them if they're in that position, whether now or, or a short time ago, 
to kind of either ground themselves or to allow themselves to feel some type of not control, but at least have some influence over this process. That's right. So that's a great question. And thank you for reframing me to the far end of the spectrum where people have really serious injury. The last thing you said there reminded me of um, Bob Sapolsky's work. So Robert Sapolsky wrote why don't zebras have ulcers and behave? So he studied stress and the stress response. Um, amazing researcher. And he identifies one of the big fork in the road of stress to be, do, does the person have control over the situation or not? If they do, can they get active around it? And if they don't, can they let it go? Can they say, I'm, there's nothing I can do? Right. So it's kind of like the serenity prayer, <laughs> you know, God help me to know the difference between the things I can change and the things I can't. So for an app, typically athletes tend to have a very strong locus of causality, internal locus of causality, which means like, I am the master of this ship. I determine my fate. I have a lot of control over how successful I am, how far I go. And so it's helpful as an athlete, but it can be unhelpful in a situation where you don't have any control. So one of the things to kind of talk about with people is you, you have had an injury and now you've got to be involved in this medical process, you know, to what degree do you have control over this process? So you can make the phone calls and schedule the appointments, but for the most part, like you're, like you were alluding to Menachem, you are going to be at the mercy of the bureaucracy and you're going to have to wait. And so if, uh, if a client and I can get on the same page as like, this is what it is. And there's nothing I can do except for move through the process. And the more flustered I'm about it, the less helpful that is going to be. That's like one kind of way to get them a, a little more grounded and like what, and then what are the things I can do? You can drink a lot of water you can take a lot of vitamins. You can, you know, kind of talking about those things because athletes really need to have a checklist of ways that they can be effective and have effect, you know, have effect on their life because being passive is just not part of their DNA. So what do I have control over? What do I not have control over is, is to me kind of stop number one. And then the next discussion I think should be about identity. And when you think about like the pie chart, like the Menachem pie chart, right? Like a certain percentage of it is athlete, certain percentage is coach, dad, blah, 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 blah. For many athletes, the athlete part is a big part of identity. And it's particularly for someone young who's in adolescence or in early adulthood, it might be more than 50%. It might be like 90% of who they are is like, I am this athlete in the world. I'm this athlete at school with my friends you know, at practice, like it just in every single context, they view themselves as an athlete. So all of a sudden, not only are they not an athlete, but they're, they don't even have mobility or they can't ambulate or, you know, they're sedentary. Right. So it is important to talk about who else, what is your identity and what else is in that pie chart in addition to being an athlete. So I, one time I worked closely with a dietitian. we were both seeing a client um, who was a, a golfer actually. And this dietitian was like, I do an exercise where I draw like petals on a flower, like a daisy with petals and then say, okay, you being a golfer is one petal. You know, what are, what's in these other petals on your flower? And that's kind of a sweet, you know, feminine way to think about it. But I think about the pie chart and in the next six months, as you're going through surgery and rehab, or you're sitting at home on your bum or whatever, what are the ways that you can express or even develop these other parts of your identity? And that conversation may, it probably needs to happen more than once. Cause in the beginning, there's probably going to be resistance or anger about that. Um, but you know, I think about it like planting a seed. Oftentimes with people who don't want to hear something, you're, you're just planting the seed and you put some water on that and then you're going to come back to it again and again. And then step three uh, or, or stop number three, and then I will stop after this, I think is 
what are the ways that you can approach this athletically, like with your athletic self? So, um, you know, just like I talked about with the runner who can't run and he's getting in the pool, like, is there a way that you can be structured and disciplined about how much sleep you get, taking your um, supplements, getting to your appointments, pushing yourself in PT, like that mindset is part of you. It's not just expressed by your body. It can be expressed by your soul and your mind and your life. So how else can you demonstrate that incredible, you know, strength that you have? So I kind of talk about athleticism as being like a character strength and how can they express that in different, in different ways in their life. And, and people like that, they like to kind of think, and I don't think this is like week one of the injury, you know, <laughs> this is somebody who's like, knows they're in it, um, is talking about how else they might be able to be them. They're express their true authentic self, even if they're not getting to be physically active with their body. I think endurance athletes, at least the ones that have come through my door, and that's a very, very small portions I, of, of the world out there. The ones that I've met and not gotten to know very well, it seems to me, and I could very well be wrong here, that a lot of the endurance athletes pick that sport for one of two reasons. One is because of the the freedom away from everything. And they can just, you know, it's not like basketball where your cell phone can ring and you can pick it up off the side and stop. When you're on the bike, you tend not to either look at your phone or if you are, it's at a stop at a very specific time. So it allows you, again, the high powered executive, they can finally, my phone's ringing. I don't care. I'm on the bike. I'm, I'm inaccessible. Yeah. That's number one. The other one, and it seems to almost always be a, a toss up. So either lots of time alone and disconnected or... Hey, I'm a cyclist. I did a hundred miles this week. You did a what? So it's a large portion of their personality. So they're missing, you know, whether it's a pie chart or the the pedals, they don't really have a whole, it's work, family, bike. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when they go through that traumatic injury, it very much is, well, who am I? I can't do this. And that's when the eating starts or the self-destructive behaviors or the purposefully missing appointments or scans. Well, why didn't you go to the scan? Oh, well, I, I just couldn't get there. In the days of Uber, mm -hmm. couldn't get there. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, well, I, 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 and the excuses start. And it's really scary as a coach to realize what's going on where this person is self-sabotaging. Yeah. What are some red flags that we ourselves should look out for of, Hey, maybe I need to talk to somebody, whether it's a friend, a coach, because I'm not going down a, a good path here. Yeah. Everything you just said are, is red flags, you know, and all of those people need intervention. Like, Hey, I noticed you're not getting your scan. What's going on there? Uh, you know, I think to recognizing yourself is really hard. Because the number one red flag is your dysphoria, which means feeling shitty. And that might look like depression. It might look like anxiety. It might look like irritability. It might look like acting out, being distracted, not being able to focus. But I like the word dysphoria because it's an umbrella term for shitty. And if you are dysphoric, um, that's a red flag. It means that you're not yourself. You don't feel good and you need help. That is a very tough sell for people who are tough athletes because they can tolerate a lot of pain and discomfort. So that one gets disregarded and the people who can see it are the people around them. So like your wife knows when you are irritable. You know, when I used to teach undergrads, I would always say irritability is not a personality trait. So if someone is irritable, they're not a jerk. There might be acting like a jerk, but that's because they don't feel good. And I think our society in general does not do a good job at noticing somebody being irritable and saying like, Ooh, I don't think they feel good. Right? Like if somebody had a big red rash all over their arms, we'd say, Ooh, that, they don't feel good. Or if they had a fever, we'd say, Oh my gosh, you must not feel good. Dysphoria, you know, when it wasn't your baseline before. So if people around you are saying that you are being grumpy or irritable or anxious or distracted, not yourself, that is important 
please do not underestimate that or minimize that. That really matters. And there's a lot going on in your body and neurologically, probably, um, that is leading to that kind of manifestation. Um, the other red flags, you know, not doing the things you say you're going to do. So not showing up at scans or, you know, um, and then you know, you mentioned the self-sabotaging behavior. So doing something not good for you or that harms you, but keeping doing it, you know, like one of the, one of the basic tenets of addiction is continued use despite adverse consequences. And that could be anything really, right? Like, you know, like anytime I eat some of ju my son's candy, I don't feel good afterwards. <laughs> like I feel all like sleepy and my stomach hurt, you know, it, this is about every Easter and every Easter I do it. Um, so I use that as an example because most people can relate to that, but you might be doing something else like binge eating or shopping or, um, other kinds of behaviors that are leading to a negative consequence, but you keep doing it anyway, self-defeating. So um, go ahead. Sorry. Can I ask? Max had a good question here. Uh, what stage of the injury then would recovery for recovery would you find is the hardest on an athlete mentally? Cause you just described, I can immediately pick that out for myself. Those the eating. That's why I laughed when you said that. Cause my son has a little same exact thing. Is there one stage of the injury or is it very individual or it kind of pops its head and then can go away or fester? Is there like yeah. a, I think it can pop its head and then go away. I think people, pe people are resilient and athletes are super freaking resilient, especially if you have a talented athlete, like they are good at pu pushing themselves and tolerating a lot. So for example, I have worked with athletes who are very devastated at the beginning because they know it's going to be a year or they know they're going to miss out on this. You know, I, I have worked with athletes who are trying to get back to their sport and they're pissed because they don't have the capacity the power, the strength that they had before. And, and then that's really deflating. And at every step along the way, just like grief, right? Like grief has no trajectory. And I, the same thing is true with recovery. There is no textbook trajectory mentally speaking there may be for your bones and there may be for your muscle recovery but psychologically speaking different things stress different people um, at different times and so I think it's important for that individual to stay attuned to like what is it that aggravates them like for a personal example I hate the winter I grew up in South Florida and now I live in Boston and so every January, I'm like, here we go. And January, I'm okay. And February, I'm like, I got this. And in April, I'm a jerk because I can't take it anymore. <laughs> like I cannot handle it. I'm out of gas. But in the thick of it, in the worst, coldest, snowiest part, I'm, I'm white knuckling it and I'm hanging in there. And so I think there's plenty of athletes where you see that kind of, process as well. And returning to sport can be really, really scary. Like, am I going to be able to perform the way I will? Am I going to be behind people who are my age or were at my level? Like what's going to happen? Am I going to injure myself again? So in some ways, you know, that's the great unknown. Whereas the doctor can tell you after you have the surgery, this, 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 and the physical therapist can tell you, okay, you're going to do this and then progress to this and then progress to that. And so the more the, the more uncertain the space is, I think the more like fear and worry it can, it can bring up for people. That, that last part about the, the, essentially the progression as you go through, right? So understanding that like you're, you did a great job of identifying you for the winter. And I grew up in Pittsburgh and I feel the same way. Like once yeah. March one comes around, like where's the sunshine? So, yeah. but, uh, what about those who haven't had that experience before, right? I remember writing Eric Cressy uh, an email, I don't know, 10 years ago asking for, I wanted to work with him or someone on his staff. Um, and he's like, man, you got quite an injury list. And I'm like, ah, I do. And there are people out there, you know, I was what, 20, 28, 29 at the time. And to me, that was just the price of doing business. But there are also individuals listening who are thankfully in their 40s who haven't had anything more than a, a stub big toe and a sprained ankle. So it, 
At that point in their life, they are now going through a traumatic injury where they're supposed to be doing this healthy lifestyle. And all of a sudden they're really injured. What about not having that? I call it the, the mind map. So how do we help those individuals? Cause I found they are hit the hardest and it's literally a blind side. You're like, Hey, this is going to come. You're going to wake up one of these days from a nap or something, and it's going to hit you. And it really is like a rogue wave. And they just, sometimes it's tough to watch that tumble. So how can we as coaches or athletes better, can you even prepare yourself for that? Like what, yeah. how do we frame it? Yeah. Well, so this example is hitting home because my husband up until May of 2020 never had anything more than like a stub toe and he was an athlete his whole entire life. Um, So what I want to say first is meet your client where they're at and follow their lead because there is a wide variety of reaction. So there are going to be people who are devastated and who are downtrodden and who feel powerless and even traumatized and are going to need a lot of support. And my husband uh, ruptured his Achilles tendon in the middle of lockdown at the pandemic. And that was a one-year recovery. So um, (laughs) it was a ridiculous, I mean, it was a very long journey of not being able to walk. He was on a crutch for months. You know, he had surgery. He had an atrophied leg. And that guy you know, he leaned all the way into what is my trainable menu? What can I do? You know, and he, and not only did he think like that, but he's a trainer. So he was posting about it. He was sharing about it. He was all kinds of people were reaching out to him about like, dude, I had that happen in X, Y, and Z and try that vitamin. And so he connected to people, you know, I think he felt a sense of other people have been through this and P and people were like, Ooh, like this should be a program and you know, that kind of thing. And he brought it into his professional life. And like his attitude was like, what can I do? And yeah, I think the day he had surgery, he was really bummed. (laughs) Um, and other than that, like he was in really good mental shape. I mean, I have to say, uh, it was very admirable. I would have been livid, (laughs) And really, really cranky um, if it had been me. So I think that the individuality of it is really not to be understated um, and that you have to meet that person where they're at. And if the person, like you said, if the person is really, really struggling to think about depression might be a part of this constellation of things they're dealing with or like One presentation I've seen is people get really kind of obsessive and compulsive because the sport, the running or the cycling was really structured. So people who tend to be really kind of perfectionistic and like, like a lot of structure, they like running and they like cycling and they like, you know, because of how you have to train for that and how you have to structure your lifestyle. And so then taking that away can just get, they don't have their really organizing thing in their life. And so then maybe that's what you need to, to focus on with that or what they need to focus on for themselves. There we go. I I was, I, I thought about following Tony's lead when I did my bicep and I just decided, you know what, with the other stuff going on in my life, it's not a good time for me to put that at the front end chair. Cause it's a lot of vulnerability. Like I remember messaging him, I think he posted, I think four or five days after surgery, he was already doing like an RDL or something like that. I was like, Hey, if you need, I'm like, I'm happy to talk. Just kind of like, is this all right? But his resiliency to go through that and really stay true to himself. And and for the listeners, I'll try and link back to one of the posts from that. Um, so you can actually see, cause he was, he really wore his heart on the sleeve and was like, Hey, today it's just not happening. So I am resting. Um, and I think his his stories on Instagram actually told much more than the post did because he really brought you into his life of this is what I'm going through. Um, whereas for me, it, it was kind of the opposite where it was like part of it was, to be honest, like I was ashamed that I would do something so stupid. Right? Mm. And it was just like I've literally yelled at people from across the gym, don't do that. And then here I am. It was it literally was a brain fart. Like the brain just turned off and I was like, Oh, I just do this. 
And slow motion, why, why are you, that's not going to end well for you, right? It's kind of like the wild E. Coyote goes off the cliff uh -huh. kind of moment. Yeah. But there was that, in that instance, because you put yourself in that position, I think a lot of endurance athletes are also highly intelligent. So they understand like, and, and then they beat themselves down. And I did that for about a half a day. I mean, I came home and my wife was like, what's wrong? I was like, I need, I need six hours to just beat myself up a little bit for being that stupid. And then we can talk about it. Mm. I think some endurance athletes get stuck in that where I shouldn't have followed that wheel, or I knew I shouldn't have taken that route today, or I, I should, and they should all over themselves, if you will. How do we get ourselves out of that? How do we put the, the handbrake on the emergency brake and say, stop, this is not going to help you. And then what step can we take to kind of bounce back from that? Reviewing past the past and, and trying to understand what role you had, what control you had over making that happen or avoiding it is part of the human condition and it is part of a reaction to trauma. So the way to think about it is this individual just went through something very bad that they didn't want to have happen. And what people do, and I want to say like every single person, no matter what you are talking about, will go back. And they will, if I didn't take that trail, if I didn't get behind that wheel, if I didn't leave my house at this time, if I, you know, they, they, so they're reviewing, the brain is reviewing all the variables and what is evolutionarily significant about that is that our human brain helps us to learn what not to do again. So like in your case, not to do whatever that bicep thing you were doing, you know, the brain's like, don't do that. But when somebody gets stuck and they're ruminating about some past mistake, they're no longer learning. It's not adding for them, it's taking away. So that's the difference between reviewing something, learning from it and moving forward versus getting stuck and then ruminating. And this is actually addressed in the literature on perfectionism. So there's a, an article I really like called Perfectionism, a Double-Edged Sword. And the author whose name is escaping me right now talks about the difference between positive perfectionism and negative perfectionism. And he says, negative perfectionism is a focus, is a rumination on the past and on mistakes you made, imperfections and what went wrong and that you did them wrong and like the shooting on yourself and like getting stuck in that scene and thinking about why didn't I do something different? That means something about me as a human being right? As opposed to positive perfectionism or striving perfectionism, which is here's what I did. Here's what I need to do differently. Next time around, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, and then focusing on the future, right? It's so you're not stuck. You review it, but then you move on from it. So the getting stuck, one way to think about it is negative perfectionism. Another way to think about it is that it's a trauma reaction and that People who are going through that, I say it's very important for them to talk, tell, tell the narrative, which you can do in therapy or to somebody else who will listen. And then to ask that person, you know, is there anything that you would have done differently? And maybe someone would say this, 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 this. Is there any way you could have known that that was going to happen? And you might say, well, yeah, I knew I shouldn't have done that. And I had a right. Or people say, no. I didn't, I had no way of knowing the twig was going to be on that. The stick was going to be on that course or, okay. It sounds like you were totally powerless over that. And again, trying to differentiate that trailhead of what's the things that are under my control and what's the things that are not the things that are under my control. What can I do differently in the future? Okay. So is there anything more to gain from going back to that scene? Right. And so some of that is trauma work, what I'm talking about right now. But as I see you guys nodding as I'm talking, like it's not rocket science. It's just helping the person to move, get unstuck, you know, and move into the present and start thinking about the future. So this has been very much focused around adults. So over the age of, of 27, 28, um, from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the prefrontal cortex only finishes development somewhere between the ages of 23 and 26. What about for adolescents? Because we are seeing two things happen in cycling more than triathlon right now, long distance. And I'm just going to take a, a side path for a minute because we have to set 
the the understanding of where this question comes from. So there's a, a Netflix series now called uh, Tour de France, uh, Cours de Peloton or Un Unchained. And we see in there a number of the top contenders drop out due to injury, crashes, whatever it may be. These are guys who are right now between the ages of 21 and 25. It used to be just to ride the Tour de France, you needed to be 27, 28, 29. We're now seeing riders younger and younger come into the top levels. And that's where this, this is kind of rooted. Without that fully developed prefrontal cortex, there is a whole host of things mentally, not just skills and life experience that are not yet developed, as well as if I understood correctly, I think that's also an age for a number of mental diseases, 21 to 24, if I'm not mistaken, to, to show, and they can come out of stress. How does working through these stresses change when we're talking about someone under the age of 25? Mm -hmm. That's a really great nuanced up-to-date question because we used to think about adults being 18 and older. So now, you know, neurologically, we know that you might be 25 or 26 before you're fully cooked. You know, your brain is all the way developed. And really, I mean, what that means is that neurogenesis slows down to almost nil. You know, we see synaptic pruning start to pick up. So it's not that 21 to 25 year olds are not adults. It's just that they've still there. We want, we want people to get the maximum of course, brain development they can possibly get. When you are in a situation that is chronically traumatized or chronically stressful, excuse me, when you are chronically stressed, it is not good for your brain. And that's people of any age. So there's acute stressors or having like one big competition come up. That's like really stressful. And typically the brain can handle that pretty well like having the increased cortisol and stress, whatever, for like about, and then it being over. Most people have survived like a really stressful semester, you know, like you could get through it. But when stress goes on and on and on and on for months and it's chronic and it doesn't subside, it's not good for your brain and it's not good for brain development. So one thing that worries me about young athletes is that stakes are high and that experience is low and the pressures might be on them that are causing them to exist in a chronic state of stress. So that worries me that that is, that's not great for the brain. It's not great for the body. It's not great for development. And then you have more prone to injury, more prone to making mistakes, you know? Um, so I think that's one part, just kind of speaking from like the neuroscience point of view. The other thing about young people is their identity is still being formed, just like their brain, you know, so who they are out in the world. And we think about 12 to 18 as kind of like identity formation during that adolescent period. And then several decades ago, a, a psychologist local here in Massachusetts identified the stage of emerging adulthood, which is 18 to 24. And in Western societies, you know, when there is a college age, you know, you're not a kid, but you're not really an adult. You're kind of like in this, in the middle zone. Um, he, he identifies that as emerging adulthood and emerging adults are thinking a lot about, okay, I, I think I have the sense of who I am on the inside. How do I be that person on the outside? You know, like what are the groups I'm affiliated with? What are, who are my people? What's my profession? what's my religion? What's my political affiliation? Like, who am I out in the world? What's my identity out in the world? And so these young people are like, I'm a cyclist, or I want to develop that. I want to establish that. I want to, the world to see me as that. So it's a tougher discussion about identity. If that gets taken off the table at that age, because there might've been a lot of fantasy and visualization and daydreaming about being that guy and then not being able to be that guy, not being able to see that come to fruition, um, which, which may have been the plan for a long time. So I think there's another level of devastation there that maybe somebody in their thirties would experience differently. I, I hope I'm wrong on this. My, my very grave concern is, uh, exactly what you described of, of for these riders 
mean, I look at basketball players. That's kind of my, my scope that I spent so many years on like basketball, 19, 18, 19, 20, really 19, 20, 21, you're drafted. So you get maybe three to five years. If you're an average player, um, even then, like you've, you've experienced success at a certain level, you've also had enough dreams broken, but you also have opportunities to develop outside of playing basketball when you're in the sport of cycling. I mean, and, and also triathlon to an extent, the opportunities to do other things, it's so all consuming. Like it has to be your life. So your friends are endurance athletes. Um, your coaches obviously are endurance athletes that these riders at 18, 19, 20, 21 are literally on the top stage of the, the sport. Where do they go from there? It's kind of like, the, instead of having that year after winning the championship of where the team underperforms or the athlete underperforms, except for those very mentally skilled professionals who are absolute superstars, right. there's a chance to re-identify, but with these guys, and also the women too, there isn't, if you're not racing or riding, it's almost like your value is lower as a human being because that's your identity. And I'm petrified of if we're seeing 21, 22, 24, 25 year olds as the winners, where are they going to go from here? Where is the sport going to go? Cause then we're going to have a lot of burnt out mentally broken people and that is not and we've seen a number of individuals step away from the sport 37 38 39 where there's still many years that they could perform but mentally they're just in a dark right. dark place um to get off the soapbox a little bit let let's let's close the the discussion today what are i i like to do two or three but listening to our past interviews in preparation for this, like, I think even just one really good recommendation from you can help. What would be one to three ways that we can prepare ourselves when we're healthy to be able to go through the rigmarole of a traumatic injury? Mm. So like prehab, if you will. Yes. Building the, the inspiration came from building your mental immunity that we had the last time. You oh were yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when you said that it got me thinking in that direction, you know, my initial reaction in a reaction to you asking that question is really to take care of your whole self and to take a holistic approach to health, you know, if you have a lot of eggs in the endurance athlete basket, be aware of that and take care of the other aspects of yourself. You know, I think a gratitude practice is a really effective way of covering a lot with one exercise. And what I mean by that is writing down three things each night before you go to bed that were good, that happened that day and why they happened. So not just what, but why. So what, what was the reason? And typically it's something that came from you. So there's like a sense of agency there. Um, so like me and my son had a really fun book read and tickle fight before bedtime. And that happened because, you know, we have a great relationship and he has an early bedtime and he knows the routine because I worked on that so hard, <laughs> you know? So it's not just being grateful for something. It's also seeing you as a human being and how you bring good things into your life. So I think, and it doesn't have to be that. It could be meditation. It could be liking to garden. It could be having a best friend or a spouse that you talk to all the time, but make sure that there are eggs in other baskets and that you're grateful for those instead of just everything, all of your well-being being reliant on the endurance, you know, the endurance part of it. So what are the other ways that you enjoy yourself and that you take care of yourself that are outside of your sport? It, it sounds like, uh, I, I did the right things. I picked up, I think it's called the five minute journal. Mm, yeah. If that's right. So I picked one of those up, put on the bedside, uh, mm -hmm. which tended to help with the bad days. I didn't use it every day personally, but it was more one of those things like, and I didn't tell my wife. She's like, what's the blue book? I'm like, you can read it if you want, but don't, don't ask any questions. And for me, that kind of worked. What about those individuals who don't have a significant other or they're living alone where 
yes, I want to focus on gratitude, but I've just had one of those days, Dr. Lewis, I, I can't, I just want to pry into my pillow. What about those individuals How, or someone, maybe the relationship isn't that good that they don't feel that they can trust the other yeah. person with that or not yeah. yet. Yeah. So I would say something like, yeah, I get it. Does crying into your pillow make you feel better after or worse? And if they say better and I get the cry out, okay. If they say, mm, after five minutes, it's really not helping and it's just, okay. So I wonder what might be better to help you on that tough day than crying longer than five minutes in the pillow. So I'm, I'm not saying come up with a solution, you know, and I'm not putting them on the spot. I like to use the expression, I wonder, because it just opens up curiosity and is cueing the other person to start to wonder, hmm, what might actually be helpful for me? Because for most people, they will say, yeah, Netflix actually isn't helpful for me, but, but like, you know, something, something else, you know, might be, and it, it could even be texting someone. It doesn't even have to be calling someone. The loneliness is a really big factor because sports puts us around other people. So even endurance athletes, they have cycling buddies, they have running buddies, they have, they're part of those communities. So maybe you join an online community or um, maybe you join some kind of support group or maybe you just text a friend. But I, I think the person identifying, is this behavior helpful for me or not? And if it is like how many minutes until it's not helpful anymore? And then what might be helpful? That is super helpful. Um, there's so much more. I mean, those were the the, the questions I, I I had, but you covered way more uh, and and very very eloquently, and I think easy to to use, not just to understand, but to actually take and use. Is there any question, or is there a question that I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh, that's a great question. I always ask that at the end of my first session with a new patient, so. I like that one. I can't think of anything. I mean, you, you know, when you and I have conversations, they sort of lead in helpful directions. And um, it's such a pleasure just to be able to lean into the open space that you create, you know, the curiosity you create around these issues that you're seeing all the time. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Jordana, do you want to jump in? Do you have any uh, question you'd like to ask before we uh, close out today? I wrote, um, actually quite a few questions down. And I just also wanted to say, um, I wish I had someone like you when I was younger because Menachem knows this, but when I was 15, I had a couple of really like serious surgeries on my hip. Um, I had a tumor in my femur and then ended up having a labral tear, but didn't know it at the time. And so I had two surgeries in a really close window and it was extremely traumatic. And I went into it completely naive thought I would get the surgery done and I'd be without pain and I'd be better mm. and no one else in my family had had any type of surgery like this so I was very positive going in and wasn't worried about it and it ended up being like the worst years of my life honestly and not being able to walk weight-bearing for months and wow. then realizing that after being on crutches and no weight-bearing I couldn't walk after I got I had no idea I like collapsed when I tried to walk for the first time and that it was just completely like unexpected wow. I've been was an athlete I have an athlete for so long and because of it I actually did de I've developed like I still now deal with mental health side effects because of that I'm 22 now and I was 15 then so, like makes me emotional because okay. I now like I developed like some mental health issues okay. due to that physical issue which mm -hmm. I never knew was going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I just feel like I wish that I had been exposed to like someone like you, or at least known that that was possible and been able to build up my mindset better. Because mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't know, my parents didn't know this was going to happen. It was completely, it's completely changed my life. And it's been over five years now since it happened. Um, so do do you like how like do you just feel like this is something that younger people need to be getting this sort of information especially when they've experienced serious injuries at such young ages because I feel like I was never given any of this information I just but the surgeon was just like I'm gonna go in there I'm gonna do this and do that and you'll be fine and 
you'll go back to playing softball in no time. And that ended up not being the case. Um, so, yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing all that. Um, what an intense journey to go through at such a young age. And um, it sounds like you have a lot of insight and you're aware of how much that impacted you, you know, to go through that physical problem and how it affected your whole self. Your question yes, is about exactly. young. Yeah. Your question is about young people being aware and young people are made aware by older people. And so adults really need in this case and every other to not underestimate the importance of an interdisciplinary team because a surgeon does surgery. They look at a problem and the solution that they see is surgery. That's their scope, right? So if you also had somebody with a different perspective, you know, if there was a PT on the team and there was a therapist on the team and there was a, you know, then there'd be some kind of round table with like, um, this is going to kick her ass. She's 15 years old and there's a really long recovery, right? Like, how are we supporting this young woman? So I think in general, you're talking about some of the deficits that exist in the modern healthcare system and how we do not take care of the whole person and that many health professionals are working in their silo and they're not connecting with other professionals and they're not connecting the patient to a team that's going to be able to provide sufficient support. So, you know, the young people, what they can do is be open and we adults need to really do a better job. I think of not just for kids, but for everybody really viewing all care as being mind and body and completely holistic. Absolutely. And I also think that I did have some coaches who fell short in that as well, mm-hmm. who, because I didn't have a large cast on my leg um, and I made was off crutches that I should be okay. And that I should be running. And I was made to feel lesser and weak mm-hmm. because I still wasn't back to hundred percent when maybe it was expected. Um, and so I think not only should the healthcare system probably also work on that I also felt like I wish I had um, coaches who were just patient and supportive during that really difficult recovery time that ended up taking longer than I thought and was more extreme than I ever thought Um, I was lucky enough to have parents who are just incredible and amazing (laughs) but yeah thank you so much for what you do for sure And I really appreciate you sharing, even though what you've been through is so hard. And the, the part about the coaches is also very important. I The athletes that I work with, I would say 99% of them are coming to see me because of a terrible coach who's like crushing their esteem and their confidence. And, you know, if there's any coaches out there listening, if your client says that they are in pain, freaking listen. Um, you know, you were a kid saying, this doesn't feel good. I don't like this. And they disregarded that. And they made you feel like you shouldn't be complaining. And the damage that that does to people long-term is just unbelievably horrendous. These are people who are supposed to be helping kids, you know? Um, so there's, there's another, like kind of the underbelly of youth sports that needs a lot of addressing. Yeah. And I I think that's where you and I, when our planned 2020 (laughs) workshop from October uh, uh, was, was due for, but you also have, I I think exactly what you said at the beginning now is we are seeing the tide turn and I really hope it stays. I mean, the fact that people are able to talk about this, like I've seen, unfortunately, Jordana, you're probably the 20 somethingth junior or youth athlete that I've seen that has had something like this happen. And it, it, the coaching certifications essentially are doing the best they can, but most people want to pay their money, get their credentials and go. And when it comes to soft sciences, like psychology or understanding the athlete, they just, Oh, sure. Yes. Whatever. I, I know what they need to, to do. I mean, most of them it's pass the, take the test until you pass it as many times as you need, and then you can go. But, um, We'll save that for another conversation because I think Lisa, you and I can kind of hash out a little bit 
a little bit more. I know you have a bunch of good resources, great resources actually for the coaches out there listening to help them to bring their game up a little bit. Um, do you want to name one or two? And as well as if you have any upcoming presentations where folks can connect with you. Well, the easy peasiest is to follow me on Instagram. That's at Dr. Lewis consulting. And I, I try for two or three times a week. Sometimes it's just once a week, but my posts are all about mental health and, and physical health exercise, strength training, and how those two things go together and weaving in things about mental health and motivation, you know, into training. Um, I, my website is my home base. That's www.drlewisconsulting.com. And you can find podcasts I've been on articles I've written and the course that I offer, which is psych skills for fit pros right now. Volume two is what's available. Oh, I'm sorry. Right now. Volume one is what's available. Volume two is what I'm working on. And that, that course is an online work at your own pace. It has been certified by the NSCA and NASM. 1.3 CEUs. And the foci of that course are self-determination theory. So motivation and how to leverage that in your clients, the trans theoretical model of change. So the process of change and how to help it progress and motivational interviewing, which is all skills for communicating to help elicit change and progress in the people that you're trying to help. Awesome. I could not recommend those courses even more. I've taken the psych skills for fitness pros. I'm still working my way through it because I kind of get stuck into one and I stay there and I want to work on it, but I strongly recommend it. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I really, really greatly appreciate you and all the really just phenomenal work you're doing. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Hey, Menachem here, and I just wanted to ask if you enjoyed this episode or any of the previous Strong Savvy Cyclists and Triathlete podcast episodes, please hit the subscribe button. Our goal here is to hit 50,000 subscribers or followers in 2023 before year's end. And it would really mean a lot to me to have your support and to know that you are out there listening, looking forward to each weekly episode that we put out here at the SSCT podcast. Thanks and have a great week. Talk to you guys next Sunday. That's it for this episode. Check out humanvortextraining.com for more great content and to keep learning.